And so I think it started off with Luke and I designing our culture in a very deliberate fashion. You know, understanding whether individuals demonstrate the right cultural markers is a starting point. And then after that, it's really an exercise of um, trying to discover a person's superpowers. I'm a huge advocate for um, strength-based hiring and strength-based management. I'm not looking for the absence of weakness. That's not interesting to me. I mean, even the presence of weakness isn't as interesting to me as the presence of overwhelming strength that an individual can apply to solving a problem that you have is what I'm looking for. This is Craig McClucky, founder and CEO of Stacklock. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries. Six, six months moonlighting. There's nothing on the backhand. Who share what it takes to change an industry. I don't exactly know what to do next. many goes to get right. Who built the teams that have their back. Our company is its people. The teams help each other achieve. Most proud of our team. Keeping scalability top of mind. All that infrastructure was a Yes, we've been fighting it as we grow. Total waste of time. The stories you don't read in the headlines. It's not an easy thing to achieve, Mike. Took it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried it again. To ride the ups and downs of the startup life. You need to really it's want it. not just about technology. All this and more on Code Story. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today, how Craig McClucky is helping developers and open source communities keep software secure and choose safer dependencies. This episode is sponsored by KiteWorks. Legacy managed file transfer tools lack proper security, putting sensitive data at risk. With KiteWorks MFT, companies can send automated or ad hoc files in a fully integrated, highly secure manner. The solution is FedRAMP moderate authorized by the Department of Defense and has been so since 2017. Step into the future of secure managed file transfer with KiteWorks. Visit KiteWorks.com to get started. This episode is sponsored by ClearQuery. ClearQuery is the analytics for humans platform. With their full suite of features, you can go from data ingestion to automated insights seamlessly. With Ask ClearQuery, you can find valuable insights into your data using plain English. Don't miss the opportunity to simplify your data analytics with ClearQuery. Get started today at clearquery.io slash codestory. Craig McClucky is a self-proclaimed boring guy, monochromatic as he puts it. At one point, he tried retiring from his professional ventures, i.e. building technology, but it didn't work. So he is now back into building tech. But outside of tech, he's a father to four children, two younger and two older, and enjoys spending time outside with them, hiking and building things. When it comes to food, he mentioned that there is no type of food he doesn't like, as long as it is well prepared and made with love. Craig has been passionate about the supply chain security space for a long time, and in the past, he built several open source projects, one being Kubernetes. He found himself intrigued at the intersection of these worlds and wanted to build a solution enabling developers to secure their open source. This is the creation story of Stacklock. So Stacklock is a relatively young company. We're only about nine months old now. And what we do is provide solutions to organizations that are looking to build software. And we're here to help those organizations understand the supply chain and create rigor and control around the 
the software supply chain. So understand your dependencies, make better choices, and institute controls that enable you to ensure that the software you're producing is uh, as safe and sustainable as you can possibly make it. This has been a passion of mine for a long time. As uh, All the best stories starts with something that you're passionate about. And again, like it's, uh, I may not be the most sympathetic character that my, my sort of passions are in the supply chain security space. And it's something I've been obsessed about for five years. I'd built a number of projects in the open source community. I had uh, worked on, a, on starting a, a technology named uh, called Kubernetes, which I think people are probably familiar with. Sold the company and... Uh, what really started dawning on me as a human being was just how contingent we are, we the human species, on open source technologies. It represents just this absolute treasure for humanity. It's the foundation of almost all innovation. You look at what people are excited about these days. We talk a lot about ChatGPT and you start looking at what does ChatGPT run on? It's open source all the way down, right? It's a Linux kernel and then it's a Kubernetes for workload management and then it's Python for development and it's PyTorch and it's Kubeflow. And you start, if it actually went and cataloged it out, you would discover that better than 90% of that is open source technology. I started asking myself, what do we know about these technologies? How do we catalog them? How do we think about them? How do we ultimately ensure that the technology we're using is, is sustainable and secure? And the answer is there's just not a lot of rigor. It's actually shocking how little rigor there is in the way that a lot of organizations approach the consumption of open source technology. The primary currency has always been the CVE, a, is there a known vulnerability in this piece of software? But it's increasingly failing us as a way to determine whether something is intrinsically safe and it's intrinsically sustainable for consumption. The presence of a CVE doesn't mean as much as it used to. And then the absence of a CVE also doesn't necessarily mean very much. It could be because something's perfect. It could be because it's perfectly malicious and it's just never been observed before. My previous job, I was very privileged to have a, a rather substantial engineering organization. I managed about 1,500 engineers at the last company I worked at and I was able to earmark a subset of resources to start playing with some of these ideas, but I never felt I really cracked the code. And I think part of that might have been just timing. You, you really want to be doing this at the right time when there's people that want to come along with the journey with you and when the world is really ready to hear your ideas. And I would say the other big catalyst was my co-founder, Lucas. He started a really interesting and powerful project that's addressing a lot of these issues. And uh, it represented the first step on a, a much longer journey, both for him and I think for the broader community and, and certainly for me. You know, you just mentioned that step one, but I'm curious about what you would consider the MVP for Stacklock, right? The first version of the product you built how long did it take to build and what sort of tools were you using to bring it to life? It took us about nine months to produce what we call these sort of the twin projects. We call them the twin marmots. We use the marmot as a logo for what we're doing because they're very security conscious animals that actually rely on community-based security. And so it took about nine months. Luke and I started working on the initial projects. And I think the the MVP was really around having a narrative that would enable an individual or, or a group of individuals to start to control their own destiny, set up and manage policies around open source software consumption. I think the thing that we were looking for to really prove that we had something was our own <laughs> successful use of, the, of these technologies. And 
specifically being able to generate evidence to ourselves that these technologies were saving us from potential missteps somewhere down the line. And so as we worked together and uh, started building um, the team up, we got to a point where we now have a lot of organizations. We have 30 different GitHub repositories. There's a lot of surface area that we're covering. Being able to actually have these controls in place so we can make sure that everything that's being submitted by developers meets certain criteria. Being able to look at our dependencies and make sure that they meet certain assumption criteria and being able to objectively evaluate those dependencies based on a set of data science principles was what we're looking for. So we, we knew we had something when when we looked at it and we're using it. We're like, wow, this is actually really pretty damn good. It's, it's saving us effort in, in producing it. That's the first step for us towards MVP was dog fooding and really liking the taste of our dog food. And uh, that then told us that we were in, in good shape. We started with Golang. Luke, my co-founder, is the uh, is the technical brains of the operations. He did a lot of the initial scaffolding and, and heavy lifting and, and design work. And then we brought on other engineers that were, were comfortable and fluent in, in Golang. At one point, we did discern a problem that, that we had, and it, it really caused us to rethink the plan a little bit because we were reasonably confident in our own use of this technology because we, we understood it and you, you tend to love the thing that you produce for yourself. But we were not confident in others being open to using it. And in particular, when you're dealing with security products, if you disappoint someone, meaning they've made an investment in something, they're looking to use it and you catch them late in the cycle. In this case, at the, the moment of a merge request, it's not, it's not a good experience. It's not a good experience for them and they're, they're inclined to work around you. You know, you're not, you're not helping them do their job in their own minds. And so we found that we had to be earlier in the cycle. We had to make sure that we weren't disappointing developers at the point at which they were looking to submit a merge request. And so we introduced additional capabilities that we, we hadn't necessarily planned to when we set forth on the journey. And that took us maybe a, a two and a half months to, to produce that sort of that really developer-relevant surface that developers could then engage with. From our thinking, just in terms of helping to address the, uh, the cold start problem and making sure that if you have a technology that's contingent on a lot of people using it to produce signal, people are not going to necessarily use it to produce signal unless other people are using it to produce signal. You've got a, you've got a cold start problem. It took us a little while to think through how to uh, address that. And I feel pretty good about where things are and, and how things are going and, and what the sort of general metrics that we're seeing in terms of people engaging and, and using what we have. This episode is sponsored by Cashfly. The web is a competitive place, and if your site delivers its content pixelated, slow, or not at all, well, then you lose. But that's where Cashfly comes in. Cashfly delivers rich media content up to 159% faster than other major CDNs. Through ultra-low latency streaming, lightning-fast gaming, and optimized mobile content, the company offers a variety of benefits. For over 20 years, Cashfly has held a track record for high-performing, ultra-reliable content delivery. While competitors call themselves fast or use cute animal names, only Cashfly holds the record of being the fastest and serves customers like Adobe, the NFL, or Roblox, where content is created by users and must be delivered in real time. For the first time ever, Code Story listeners can get a 5-terabyte CDN for free. Yep, you heard that right, free. Learn more at cashfly.com slash codestory. That's C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com slash codestory. This episode is sponsored by KiteWorks. Legacy managed file transfer tools are dated and lack the security that today's remote workforce demands. Companies that continue relying on outdated technology put their sensitive data at risk. And that's where KiteWorks comes in. 
KiteWorks MFT is absolutely the most secure MFT on the market today. It has been FedRAMP moderate authorized by the Department of Defense since 2017. Through FedRAMP, KiteWorks level of security compliance provides a fast route to CMMC compliance, saving customers time, effort, and money. KiteWorks MFT makes it easy for users to send automated or ad hoc files via fully integrated shared folders and email. Administrators can manage policies in a unified console and create custom integrations using their API. Did we mention it's secure? The level of security with KiteWorks solution is rare to find. Step into the future of secure managed file transfer with KiteWorks. Visit KiteWorks.com to get started. That's K-I-T-E-W-O-R-K-S dot com. Okay, so moving forward then. So you've got the MVP, you've got your approach, you're getting some traction. Tell me about how you've progressed the product and matured it. I think to wrap in a box a little bit, what I'm looking for is how did you build your roadmap? How did you go about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to address with Stacklock? What we did is we did a lot of interviews. We, We spent a lot of time talking to people and just interviewing them and understanding where their pain points were, where their their challenges were, what was difficult for them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That process of just having these conversations enabled us to establish a set of kind of thematic things that we basically like to organize ourselves around. We just basically produce epics. Uh, developers to take an epic, do the sort of functional decomposition of that, turn into a set of tasks, execute those tasks, integrate them, and rinse and repeat. We, we tend to run everything on a, on a sort of two-week uh, sprint cycle and try to make sure that everything's stable in, in between those, those cycles that you know, folks have a good runway to execute. And so for us, it was, it was this intersection of just customer empathy, customer conversations, including our own developers, because as I mentioned, dog fooding was an important part of our, our acceptance criteria here. And then doing some back-of-the-napkin calculations to ascertain what the relative cost of things were. So we wanted to obviously scoop up as much low-hanging fruit as possible, but we're also being very judicious around just order of operations. Like, I think there's an art to this that becomes apparent once you've built several systems. And this is certainly not my first system or Luke's first system. You know that you've got to get some of the core structures right. You want to get the API surface area correct. You want to get the, the broad interfaces defined. If you have a policy engine, you probably want to get those interfaces created. You want to decide if you want something bespoke or many. So do the most disruptive things first, try to get a you know, stable API surface area. And then once we'd made those investments, we could start to execute a strategy which was around just feature build up and increasing the, the sort of functional capabilities of what we're doing. It's kind of natural rhythm you, you fall into and just having these high quality conversations, being rigorous around writing down what we learned from conversations, synthesizing that using a variety of different sort of apparatus or affinity techniques, and then presenting that in a collaborative fashion with engineering to sequence out the order of operations, embark on a semi-weekly planning cycle and just execute the heck out of it. It's been the, the way we've run. So here you're saying we. Tell me about how you built your team. What do you look for in those people to indicate that they're the winning horses to join you? Culture is by far the most important attribute. As a starting point, making sure that we are we have enough shared what we call virtues. We're not, we, we don't believe in, in values that, you know, you can talk a lot about values, but you don't necessarily have to live them. We, we, we want people that are demonstrating actual virtues. They're, they're living these, they're living this way. 
And so I think it started off with Luke and I designing our culture in a very deliberate fashion. You know, understanding whether individuals can demonstrate the right cultural markers is a starting point. And then after that, it's really an exercise of um, trying to discover a person's superpowers. I'm a huge advocate for um, strength-based hiring and strength-based management. I'm not looking for the absence of weakness. That's not interesting to me. Even the presence of weakness isn't as interesting to me as the presence of overwhelming strength that an individual can apply to solving a problem that you have is what I'm looking for. And I can live with weaknesses. And so for me, the whole process of hiring is about establishing chemistry, which is largely around culture, and then trying to assemble a set of people that have non-overlapping superpowers. So a diverse group of individuals that have unique experiences, backgrounds, skills, capabilities to the table, that they are then organized around this common mission to execute. It's magic when it happens. It's the most amazing feeling in the world. Hello, welcome to the Data Analytics Club. Do you know the password? No, I didn't know there was one. Do you know how to code? Uh, no. Do you know how to query data? Like, ask a question? I guess not. Hmm, I see. Then you can't be in this club. Sorry, goodbye. Don't be left out of the Analytics Club. ClearQuery is the Analytics for Humans platform. With their full suite of features, you can go from data ingestion to automated insights seamlessly. ClearQuery provides you with the information you need without requiring you to do the heavy lifting. Their Ask ClearQuery feature allows you to ask questions in plain English, helping you find relationships and connections in your data that may have previously gone unnoticed. You can even visualize your data with presentation mode, taking your data storytelling to the next level. Pricing is based on storage, not licenses, and that ensures that you get the most bang for your buck. Don't miss the opportunity to simplify data analytics, your data analytics, with ClearQuery. Get started today at clearquery.io slash codestory. This episode is sponsored by Cashfly. The web is a competitive place, and if your site delivers its content pixelated, slow, or not at all, well, then you lose. But that's where Cashfly comes in. Cashfly delivers rich media content up to 159% faster than other major CDNs. Through ultra-low latency streaming, lightning-fast gaming, and optimized mobile content, the company offers a variety of benefits. For over 20 years, Cashfly has held a track record for high-performing, ultra-reliable content delivery. While competitors call themselves fast or use cute animal names, only Cashfly holds the record of being the fastest and serves customers like Adobe, the NFL, or Roblox, where content is created by users and must be delivered in real time. For the first time ever, Code Story listeners can get a 5-terabyte CDN for free. Yep, you heard that right, free. Learn more at cashfly.com slash codestory. That's C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com slash codestory. This will be super interesting, given your background and given what you're building. So I kind of feel silly asking the question, but I'm going to ask it. Did you build this to scale efficiently from day one? Or have there been anywheres that you've had to, or I'm sorry, has there been anywhere where you've had to fight it as you grow? And that could be technology, but it could also be team. I have not had any problems with this. I'm an older guy, right? This is not my first rodeo. I've built more things that failed than succeeded in my life. I've had a few good hits. There's some good stuff in my resume, but there's also a lot of mistakes made. I tend to surprise people a little bit because 
I always push the team to behave behave like the team you're going to grow up to be. I think I surprise even my board sometimes because I tend to be a little bit more rigorous than you typically see in a rinky-dink little startup. But at the same time, it pays dividends. Like we, we're, we're, it's too young to call any kind of success with Stacklock. We're very early in our journey, but you know, I think with when you look at my previous company, we did things that people thought were crazy. I insisted on a full audit readiness after our first year of operations. It sounds mundane, but our accounting systems were impeccable. They were very clean. So when it became time for acquisition, it was absolutely frictionless. It was categorized as one of the uh, as one of the most seamless uh, diligence processes that the, the acquiring company had ever looked at. And so I, I do think you don't want to create structures that slow you down and, and introduce unnecessary friction, but there's, a, there's an art to behaving like the company you want to grow into so that you grow the right skeletal structure, you grow the right bones. I think there's also an art knowing when it's too much, like when you're creating process for the sake of process or structure for the sake of structure. You, you want to maintain that agility because it is your core value as a little rinky-dink startup. So as you step out on the balcony... And you look across all that you've built with Stacklock. What are you most proud of? It's always the people. I think the thing I'm most proud of is just the people. Like, and it's the people that you've worked with over the months and years to, and just see how they grow and they mature and they develop and they become powerful, effective, competent individuals and, and then and find their own success. It's surrounding myself with people that I could see myself working with indefinitely in a variety of capacities. There's people I work with who I'd be happy to work for. And there's people that I've worked with that I've worked with for years. There's people I've just met, but I'm, I'm hoping I'll still be working with them in 10 years. So a company is a fascinating thing to build, but the, the ingredient is people. It's this beautiful machine that's made out of these most wonderful, sometimes crazy, valuable, peculiar ingredients called people. Okay. So let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I think some of the biggest mistakes I've made have been putting people in a position that they weren't able to succeed in. Not because they were not diligent or wonderful or otherwise incredibly competent people, but because I didn't know what that position looked like. I didn't know what I needed and I couldn't map the person to that position. And I think that's been probably the most gut-wrenching set of mistakes that I've made historically. The way to address that is seek outside guidance, get expert assistance, spend more time getting your job description right, play it past people who know exactly what this looks like, involve them in the assessment process, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But those have been the most, the most appallingly painful kind of mistakes. I've made terrible mistakes technically. I've pursued strategies that were not well thought through. I've created systems that have architectures that are broken. But at the end of the day, the hardest mistakes are always human-related. This will be fun. It's early days. You said you're a team about 20 now. You've got, a, you got ways to go. You've done this before. Tell me what the future looks like for Stacklock, the product, and for your team. My last company, I went from north to 110 people in two years. And so I did this kind of unfettered growth thing. The way that this is working right now is grow hard and grow hard. I think of it as a hardwood tree. You want the, for your company to be strong, you need to take this period for the team to set and gel before you go through your next growth phase. So what I did with the period today was we went through very rapid growth to about 20 
We slowed our growth and we went through a very hard period of focused execution. We ran hard as a team. And then now we we're entering the next phase of growth. Then we're going to harden and run as a team, etc. So, so we're just going through these kind of phases. And what, what the next phase will take us through is we're going to continue the feature build out until we start to see strong organic uptake of our open source offer. So that'll be measured by the number of, of communities that are willing to engage with us, that look at what we're doing as being useful to them, are willing to make it part of their operating flow, or willing to contribute resources back. So that's going to be the, the next phase of us. So that'll take us through to probably, I would imagine, a quarter. And then the next quarter after that will be, so we'll, we're basically going to grow, we're going to execute that, then we'll, we'll uh, bring on resources that are necessary to basically render commercial outcomes, in, like mostly in a PLG-like context. And then it'll be the transition to a much more kind of revenue-centric, business-oriented way of, of operating. It'll be a game of figuring out the, the sort of market segments we want to pursue, what the marketing apparatus and lead gen apparatus needs to look like, how to organize ourselves, efforts so that we can be efficient. We'll be thinking through what size deals and which segments are going to be coming from. And we'll start the, the build out from a commercial perspective. It's difficult to predict because the most effective thing you have when you're a rinketing little startup like us is agility. We can move tremendously quickly. We can scale effectively. We, we don't have the ability to bring a, a gazillion resources to bear, but if we come up with something novel, we can, we're certainly not encumbered by debt. It's just this, it's a period of growth, execute, growth, execute, growth, execute, and then transitioning from community centricity to commercials in about six months from now. Okay, Craig, let's switch to you. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something you look up to and why. You asked me the, the book I liked the most. It was that uh, Good to Great. And there were a few things that Jim Collins did that I really liked and uh, I've taken to heart. First of all, I think he outlined the level five leader and uh, like this idea that the, like the, the, the most wonderful people are this intersection of relentlessness and humility. And I don't think I can, I'm not, I don't see myself as a level five leader, right? Like, I don't know how humble I am, but I, I keep an eye out for these people when I'm looking to bring in folks into significant roles. I consider my co-founder, Luke Hines, to be um, a level five leader. He's this wonderful combination of just incredibly humble and just kind and, and courteous, but entirely relentless in terms of his pursuits. And that, that really galvanized me or motivated me. You see these types of people where success happens around them, but then they just don't go out of their way to claim credit for it. And it's a fascinating pattern. Once you can see it, you can't really unsee it. It's really wonderful. But the other thing that I really liked about the way that Collins operates is he finds truth in data, which is one of our kind of core cultural sort of markers that I look for inside inside Stacklock. You want to be able to look at look at a system and, and, and look for the truth in the data and get past your own biases, get past your own what you want, hope, think, feel, need, etc., and actually find truth in information. And uh, that the whole book is organized in that fashion. And that's something that I found very motivational. And it's something I like to do when I'm, I'm organizing. My, my own approach to, to building things is, is, is just looking for that truth in data. Okay, Craig, last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world and can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person, having gone down this road a bit several times? 
this is going to sound really funny, but I, I, I hope people take this to heart. Like, success is a shit teacher. Like, you have that entrepreneur who's got that great idea. And it's entirely plausible that they will, they're going to build the next Google. You're sitting next to the next Bill Gates, or you're sitting next to the next Sergey Brin or whomever. I think that a lot of people get locked in and they almost become caricatures of something as they succeed in their in their careers. And if, if a successful idea starts to generate its own heat and they, they, they catch the tiger by the tail, which, by the way, I, I can't claim to have ever done. Like I've, never, I've never caught the tiger by the tail where the thing that you've built becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And everything I've done is always a bit of a high wire act where there's you know falls and drama and, and success just seems incredibly unlikely for a long time until eventually you, you, you find success. But I would say just be suspicious of your own success. Are you succeeding because of who you are? Or are you succeeding despite who you are? And could you be even better if you were just a little bit more humble and a little bit more open to, to seeing what actually makes you successful in the world? Mm, I like that. I like that a lot. Well, Craig, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Stacklock. Thanks for having me on. And this concludes another chapter of Coat Story. Coat Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.